But nonetheless, I want to say something. I'm deeply impressed by the Institute, and you know why? The beautiful introductions made a nice point, and I would, if you, Robert, agree, mention Kant here in his famous short schrift, Wassist uh, Aufklärung. He emphasizes that the formula of Aufklärung is not against the old authoritarianism, uh, uh, don't think, obey, uh, or don't obey, think. It is obey, but think freely. And this is what we need today. When you have reasonable measures against the pandemic and so on, if society decides something, obey the measures, but think, think freely. And I think what you were after, esteemed colleagues who introduced me, was precisely what you almost pronounced, some of you, the word. What Kant meant by, what's the German term, öffentliches Gebrauch der Vernunft, the public use of reason. And Kant uses this term in a wonderfully counterintuitive way. For him, private use of reason is the use by the state. He names theologische Fakultät, uh, Rechtsfakultät, where the scope of what you can inquire into is predetermined by the interest of the state and so on. While what we are doing here is outside in this sense, private state domain. It's public use of reason. We should obey as citizens, but it's our duty to ask, uh, it's our duty to ask questions. Okay, so have some patience and let me begin. Although I must say, I cannot resist slight bad taste, but nothing can guarantee me. When I hear that Kete Hamburger Center apocalypse, maybe at the level of food, the apocalypse is if you eat too many hamburgers instead of <laughs> our own good food. But that's a totally different idea. Okay, let me not get lost. I have a quite long, substantial speech. When I visited Heidelberg the first time, some 15, 20 years ago, I was told that Martin Heidegger once took a walk on your famous philosophen Weg, slipped on a sharp turn and ingloriously fell down. My intervention here can also be taken as a comment on another sleep of Heidegger, the one that happened on his Holzweg as a thinker. It concerns precisely our topic, apocalypse, catastrophe, the end of history. Namely, we live in a weird moment when multiple catastrophes, pandemic, global warming, social tensions, the prospect of full digital control over our thinking, and so on, compete for primacy. Also primacy in the sense of which of them will count as what Jacques Lacan called point de capiton, the quilting point, step punct, I think it's translated into German, which totalizes all others. The main candidate in the public discourse today 
for this step punct is global warming. While lately, the antagonism which, in our part of the world at least, appears as the crucial one is the one between partisans and of vaccination and vaccine skeptics. The problem is here that for the COVID skeptics, the main catastrophe is today the fake vision of the pandemic catastrophe itself, which is, as they claim, manipulated, even created by those in power to strengthen social control and economic exploitation. If one takes a closer look at how the struggle against vaccination condenses other struggles, struggle against state control, struggle against science, struggle against corporate economic exploitation, struggle for the defense of our way of life, and so on, it becomes clear that this key role of the struggle against vaccination is, I think, the outcome of an ideological mystification in some aspects even similar to anti-Semitism. In the same way that anti-Semitism is a displaced, mystified form of anti-capitalism, the struggle against vaccination is also a displayed, mystified form of the class struggle against those in power. To find a way in this mess, we should maybe mobilize the distinction between apocalypse and catastrophe, reserving the term catastrophe for what Günther Anders called naked apocalypse, namely, as you all know, I'm sure, apocalypse, an uncovering in ancient Greek, is a disclosure or revelation of knowledge in religious speech. What apocalypse discloses is something hidden, the ultimate truth we are blind for in our ordinary lives. In his essay, Apocalypse, Without kingdom, Anders introduced the concept of naked apocalypse. Quote from his text, the apocalypse that consists of, a, of mere downfall, which doesn't represent the opening of a new positive state of affairs, or a new kingdom, end of quote. Anders' idea was that a nuclear catastrophe would be precisely such a naked apocalypse. No new kingdom will arrive out of it, just the obliteration of ourselves and our world. And the question we should raise today is, what kind of apocalypse is announced in the plurality of catastrophes that today pose a threat to all of us? Let me begin with the obvious candidate. What kind of apocalypse announces itself by the prospect of full digitalization of our lives? When the threat posed by digitalization is debated in our media, the focus is usually on the new face of capitalism, called by Shoshana Zuboff, you probably at least many of you know her book, Surveillance Capitalism. Quote from her, 
book, knowledge, authority and power rest with surveillance capital, for which we are merely human natural resources. We are the native people now whose claims to self-determination have vanished from the maps of our own experience." End of quote. So we, the watched, observed by the digital machinery, are not just material, we are also exploited, involved in an unequal exchange, which is why the term behavioral surplus, playing the role of surplus value, is fully justified here. When we are surfing, buying, watching TV and so on, we get what we want, but we give more. We lay ourselves bare. We make the details of our life and its habits transparent to the digital big other. The paradox is, of course, that we experience this unequal exchange, the activity which effectively enslaves us as our highest exercise of freedom. What is more free than freely surfing on the web? That's, I think, the danger of our societies. That's why we should also analyze our free world. In China, everybody knows who is the boss. They don't have any illusions. But in the United States, my God, they really think they are free, how should I put it, no? <laughs> and I think that the most dangerous unfreedom is unfreedom which is experienced as freedom. You are not even aware of it. However, important as this surveillance capitalism is, it is not yet the true game changer, I think. I see a much greater potential for new forms of domination in the prospect of direct brain-machine interface, which is, I think, today's main candidate for the end of history. After it will take place, if it will take place, the rest will not be history, at least not history as we know it and experience it. The distance between our inner life, the line of thoughts, and external reality is the basis of the perception of ourselves as free. We are free in our thoughts precisely in the far as they are at a distance from external reality, so that we can play with our thoughts, make thought experiments, engage in dreaming, and so on, with no direct consequences in reality. No one can control us here. But once our inner life is directly linked to reality, so that our thoughts have direct consequences or can be directly regulated by a machine that is part of reality. And they are, in this sense, no longer ours. We effectively enter a post-human state. Now, often when I develop these people tell me, but it is, this is a utopia, it will not happen. Well. Don't be too optimistic here. It is already going on, like just a detail, although I hate mentioning China all the time. They are just doing things that we are also all doing them just a little bit more discreetly. But you know that in, mil in uh, thousands of Chinese elementary school, pupils have to wear some kind of a metal ring 
which cannot read their thoughts yet, but controls their brain activity so that the teacher no longer has to watch them. Are you falling asleep and so on? If you are not attentive, it shows directly on his screen. Okay, we now come to the next point. We regularly hear complaints about how the digital uh, virtualization of our reality, complaints about this, of how we are losing contact with full reality, sex included. But if we talk about material reality, it is mostly about the exhaustion or growing shortage of natural resources. But I think it's crucial to note that there is also the opposite, the excess, the exploding abundance of waste in all its forms, from millions of tons of plastic waste circulating in oceans to air pollution. The name for this surplus is emissions. What is emitted is a surplus which cannot be recycled, reintegrated into the circulation of nature, a surplus which persists as an unnatural remainder, growing ad infinitum. This waste is, I think, the material counterpart of homeless refugees who form a kind of human waste, waste, of course, from the standpoint of global commodity circulation. The conclusion that imposes itself here is, what if apocalypse, in the full sense of the term, uh, which also includes apocalypse in the sense of the disclosure of something that was still now invisible truth, what if it never happens? What if truth, the Wahrheit, is something that is constructed afterwards as an essay to make sense of the catastrophe? Some would argue that the disintegration of communist regimes in Eastern Europe in 1990 was an authentic apocalypse. It brought out the truth that socialism doesn't work, that liberal democracy is the finally discovered best possible socioeconomic system. But this Fukuyama's dream of the end of history ended with a crude awakening a decade later, let's say on September 11th, so that we live today in an era which is best characterized as the end of the end. The, Christ, the circle is closed, we passed from catastrophe to apocalypse, and then back to catastrophe. We hear again and again that we are at the end of history, but this end just drags on and even brings its own enjoyment. Now I want to go a little bit further. Our usual notion of catastrophe is that it takes place when the intrusion of some brutal, real earthquake, war, ruins the symbolic fiction which is our reality, which structures our experience of social reality. But perhaps there is no less a catastrophe when reality remains as it is and just the symbolic fiction that sustains our approach to reality dissolves. 
Let me give you a shocking, for some of you, maybe obscene example. Let's take the case of sexuality. Since nowhere do fictions play a more crucial role than in sexuality. In an interesting comment on the role of consent in sexual relations, Eve Weissman, in a comment in The Guardian, refers to a moment in The Butterfly Effect, John Ronson's podcast series about internet porn. On the set of a porn film, an actor lost his erection mid-scene. Two, get it back, the erection, he turns away from the woman, naked, below him, he grabs his phone and desperately searches for Pornhub. <laughs> and if Weissman writes, this struck me as vaguely apocalyptic. <laughs> Why? Weissman's comment, something is rotten in the state of sex. I agree, but I would add the lesson of psychoanalysis. Human sexuality is in itself perverted, exposed to sadomasochist reversals and specifically to the mixture of reality and fantasy. Even when I am alone with my partner, my sexual interaction with him or her is inextricably intertwined with my fantasies. Every sexual interaction is potentially structured like a masturbation with a real partner. I hold you, don't take it personally, abstractly, <laughs> I hold you naked in my hands, but I just use you as a prop to actualize my fantasy. I use the flesh and body of my partner as a prop to enact fantasies. What cannot... We cannot reduce this gap between the bodily reality of my partner and myself and the universe of fantasies. We cannot reduce it to a distortion opened up by patriarchy and social domination or exploitation. I think the gap is here from the very beginning. So I quite understand the actor who, in order to regain erection, searched on his uh, iPhone porn hub. He was looking for a phantasmatic support of his performance. Such a loss of fiction is what happened to the hardcore actor, is what happened to him who needed porn hub images to sustain his sex activity. Think about it, there is something again terrifying in this. It not, it's not only if you cannot make love for whatever reason, you don't find a partner, you are impotent, you dream about it. No, you need to dream even if you make real sex. If you lose the dream, what remains, it's a nightmare, basically. This brings us to another apocalyptic end. And I want to focus now the second part of my talk. Please don't be too bored to this. Uh, the long foretold end of philosophy. You know, when people talk about end of philosophy, my God, are we aware that from Kant onwards, end of philosophy was a feature of every post-Kantian philosophy. For Kant, it's conditions of possibility, 
of philosophy, not yet metaphysics, Fichte, Hegel, Schelling, the same Hegel, you know, no longer philosophy, but Wissen, Selbst, Marx, it's clear, uh, uh, whoever you want, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and so on and so on. But today, I think we live in a unique moment when we have two ends of philosophy. The one in positive sciences, occupying the field of old metaphysical speculations, and the one announced by Heidegger, among others. Heidegger brought the transcendental approach to its radical conclusion, reducing philosophy to the description of the historical events, Ereignisse, modes of disclosure of being. In the last decades, technological progress in experimental physics has opened up a new domain unthinkable in the classical scientific universe, that of the experimental metaphysics. Questions previously thought to be a matter for philosophical debate have been brought into the orbit of empirical inquiry. What was still now the topic of mental experiments is gradually becoming the topic of actual laboratory experiments. Uh, for example, the properly metaphysical questions of is there contingency in reality or not? Is that, uh, is causality limited by time, space, locally conditioned? What is the status of reality independently of our observation? Even big questions like, does our universe have a beginning, temporal, and spatial, and end? Do we have free will? Today, and I don't agree with it, I just describe it. Today, we don't ask philosophers this question. We expect an answer from quantum uh, cosmologists, from cognitive uh, sciences, and so on and so on. This is why, at the very beginning of his last book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking triumphantly proclaims that philosophy is dead. But, on the other hand, with today's, still in at least so-called continental philosophy, what Americans call continental philosophy, predominant approach, I call it, I will immediately explain why, transcendental historicism. Uh, naive questions about reality are accepted precisely as naive, which means they cannot provide the ultimate cognitive frame of our knowledge. For example, Michel Foucault, his notion of Wahrheit, truth, can be summed up in the claim that truth, untruth, is not a direct property of our statements, but that in different historical conditions, different discourses produce each its own truth effect. It implies its own criteria of what claim what, of what is true. A brief quote from Michel Foucault. The problem does not consist in drawing the line between that in discourse which falls under the category of scientificity or truth and that which comes under some other category. 
but in seeing historically how effects of truth are produced within discourses which are neither true nor false." End of quote. So science defines truth in its own terms. The truth of a proposition, which should be formulated in clear, explicit, preferably formalized terms, is established by experimental procedures which could be repeated by anyone. Religious discourse operates in a different way. Its truth is established through complex rhetorical ways which generate the experience of inhabiting a meaningful world, benevolently controlled by a higher power. So, for example, if one were to ask Michel Foucault a big metaphysical question like, do I have a free will? His answer would have been something like, this question only has meaning, it can only be raised within a certain episteme, field of knowledge and power, which determines under what conditions it is true or false. And all we can ultimately do is to describe this episteme. For Foucault, uh, what in German is called unhintergebares, what you cannot reach behind is simply the historically specified episteme. These two approaches, scientific and transcendental, do not complement each other. They are mutually exclusive, but the immanent insufficiency of each of them opens up the space for the other. Sciences cannot close the circle and ground in its object the approach it, the science, uses when analyzing its object. Only transcendental philosophy can do it. Like here, not only Heidegger, although they are very different, even Habermas, Heidegger's great opponent, has a point when he says about the cognitive scientific attempts to develop our very ability to think, that they are circular. They already presuppose a certain scientific approach to reality, which is not immanently uh, proven out of the scientific project uh, itself. Uh, on the other hand, uh, transcendental philosophy limits itself to describing different disclosures of being and has to ignore the naive ontic question. How are entities outside of the horizon of how they appear to us? And science fills in the void about <coughs> the nature of thing. Like, science raises this question. Now, back to Heidegger. Although Heidegger is the ultimate transcendental philosopher, you know what I mean by this? I think Heidegger really brought, in some sense, philosophy to the end. For him, the most radical thing thinking can do is simply describe historical, epochal disclosures of being. Like in modern, for Heidegger, for example, what we experience as reality changed from medieval times to modernity. In pre-modern times, meaning, 
deeper sense and so on was part of reality itself. With modernity, reality in itself is supposed to be grey, regulated by mechanistic uh, law, and meaning is just pro projected into it by us. But that's it for Heidegger. You cannot reach behind this and ask the naive question, okay, okay, but is there anything prior to its historical disclosure to us? Now, what is so interesting, and here I want to push Heidegger to the edge, is that in his elaboration of the notion of untruth, verborgenheit, lethe, older than the very dimension of truth, Heidegger emphasizes how men's, quote from Heidegger, stepping into the essential unfolding of truth is a transformation of the being of man in the sense of a derangement, verrückung, going mad of his position among beings, end of quote. The derangement to which Heidegger refers is, of course, not a psychological or clinical category of madness. It signals a much more radical, properly ontological aberration, reversal, when, in its very foundation, the universe itself is, in a way, out of joint. According, among great philosophers, I think, Schelling and Hegel already clearly saw this dimension. Read Hegel, he is more Foucauldian, referring to Michel Foucault, than Foucault himself in his well-known books about the history of madness. So, for Hegel, uh, madness is not an accidental lapse, distortion, illness of human spirit, but something which is inscribed into individual spirit as its basic ontological constitution. To be a human being means to be potentially mad. Quote from Hegel, Anthropologie, the first part of philosophy of spirit. This interpretation of insanity as a, as a necessarily occurring form or stage in the development of the soul is, of course, not to be understood as if we were asserting that every mind, every soul, must go through the stage of extreme derangement. Such an assertion would be as absurd as to assume that because in his Rechtsphilosophie crime is considered as a necessary manifestation of the human will, therefore to commit crime is an inevitable necessity for every individual. Crime and its insanity are extremes which the human mind in general has to overcome in the course of its development." End of quote. So, although not a factual necessity, madness is a formal possibility constitutive of human mind. It is something who the threat of which has to be overcome if we are to emerge as normal subject, which means that normality can only arise as overcoming of this threat. It's not that we have first normal mind and then some of us, unfortunately, cannot do it, regress into madness. No. Normal mind itself is a defense against a threat of 
madness. We must also remember that Heidegger wrote the lines of madness in the years of his intense reading of Schelling's Freiheitsschrift, Treatise on Human Freedom, a text which discerns the origin of evil precisely in a kind of ontological madness, the derangement of man's position among beings. Uh, a quote from Heidegger, man in his very essence is a catastrophe, a reversal that turns him away from the genuine essence. Man is the only catastrophe in the midst of beings. Just suffer a little bit more and then lighter or even darker things will come soon. Okay, so for Heidegger, the ultimate cause of the derangement, Verrücktheit, that pertains to Dasein, Heidegger's name from Zeit on for, of the human being, resides in the fact that Dasein is by definition embodied. And towards the end of his life, Heidegger conceded that for philosophy, I quote, the body phenomenon is the most difficult problem. The body, das li the bodily, das leibliche, in the human is not something animalistic. The manner of understanding that accompanies it is something that metaphysics, uh, metaphysics up till now has not touched on." End of quote. I am tempted to risk, I cannot develop it today, the hypothesis that it is precisely psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic theory, which was the first to touch this key question. Is not the Freudian eroticized body, sustained by libido, organized around erogenous zones, is it not the non-animalistic, not biological body? This is what, unfortunately, Heidegger doesn't see. Heidegger totally misses this dimension when, in his Zollikoner Seminare, he dismisses Freud as simple mechanical causal determinist. A quote from Heidegger, he, Freud, postulates for the conscious human phenomena that they can be explained without gaps. That is to say, with, without, with the continuity of causal connections. Since there are no such connections in our consciousness, Freud had to invent the unconscious in which there have to be the causal links without gaps. This interpretation may appear correct. Is it not that Freud tries to discover a causal order in what appears to our consciousness as confused, contingent mess of mental facts, sleep of, slips of tongue, dreams, symptoms, and so on? And in this way, to close the chain of causal links that regulate our psychic life. However, I think that Heidegger misses the way the Freudian unbewusste, unconscious, is grounded in the traumatic encounter of an otherness whose intrusion precisely breaks, interrupts the continuity of the causal link. What we get in the unconscious is not a complete causal link, but the repercussions, the aftershocks of a traumatic cut. 
What Freud calls symptoms are ways to deal with the, this traumatic cut, while fantasy is a formation destined to cover this cut. Now we face the key question. If man, is man the only catastrophe in the midst of beings? Is man, rather human being, an exception? So that if we assume the impossible point of view of looking at the universe from a safe distance, we see a universal texture of beings, just not deranged by catastrophes, since man is a catastrophe only from our standpoint. So, should we adopt then the Kantian position? We are a catastrophe, but only for ourselves. Because of our finitude, we always see reality from a distorted, deranged, verructed standpoint, but not in itself. Uh, I think, I don't have time to go into this now, of course, but I think that our answer here should be, as it was already mentioned in your graceful introduction, in the line of much more radical thinking which occurs. I'm just giving you hints in some of uh, modern, okay, modern, late Middle Age European mystics like Jacob Böhme in Schelling and so on, that no, the catastrophe happens already in God itself. From that, uh, uh, how should I put it, God the, there is a world, reality, because something went wrong in God himself. And I think this is, that's why I call myself a little bit ironically atheist Christian. This is what Christianity knows. You know, the key, all other religious say you live in a fallen world, pray, be good, and you can elevate yourself at least a little bit towards God. Christian message is the opposite one. When you think you are abandoned by God, identify with Christ on the cross, who is also abandoned by his father. You know that famous Eli, Eli, Lama, and that only you overcome your humanity, you identify by God, only by identifying with the fall, radical gap in God himself. And this is, I think, I don't have time to develop all this now, of course. Uh, this is my ontological stance about apocalypse, catastrophe, and so on, and so on. Uh, every image that we make of reality in itself, even the top scientific ones, quantum physics, relativity theory formulations, are already not false, but simply they involve our standpoint. The only touch with the real, independently of us, is when we experience this psychotic breakdown, breakdown madness at our origin. And now, uh, just to conclude, I want just uh, to justify myself why focusing on Heidegger. Because, you know, Heidegger is, Heidegger admits this. He is usually dismissed as a obsessed with question of being. But in one of his late writings, he openly admits that the question of, but how is 
reality or whatever we call it, in itself, out of a historical disclosure of being, that she totally ignored this point. A quote, I often ask myself, this has for a long time been a fundamental question for me. What nature would be without men? And only at the end, he approaches this with some mystical speculations in the sense of even Walter Benjamin, claiming that there is some kind of uh, 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 pain and nostalgia in nature. And then when we humans begin to speak, Benjamin Walter also says it, that this pain in nature, which in nature remains speechless, is... Uh, is, uh, is uh, articulated. Okay, not to go for too long, the rather sad conclusion to be drawn from all this is that a catastrophe is not something awaiting us in the future, something that can be avoided with well-thought-out strategy. Catastrophe, in not only its basic ontological sense, is something that always already happened, and we humans are what remains, at all levels, even in the most empirical sense. Do the immense reserves of oil and coal, till now our most important source of energy, not bear witness of immense catastrophes that took place on our Earth before the rise of human count. Our normality is by definition post-apocalyptic. Post, uh, so I think that uh, uh, our basic stance should be we are already in apocalypse. And the problem with those who are spreading panic, you know, will there be an apocalypse, is not that they are too pessimist, but that they are afraid to accept, to confront the danger. I quote my colleague Alenka Zupancic, who wrote, it seems that we prefer to die than to allow the apocalyptic threat to scare us to death. You think she is dreaming? I will give you an example. In the spring of 2020, the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, said that grandparents like him he was 68 years at that point, don't, uh, don't want to sacrifice the country's economy and way of life during the coronavirus crisis. A quote from a speech by Dan Patrick. The, no one reached out to me and said, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping America that all Americans love, keeping it alive for your children and grandchildren. Patrick said, if that's the exchange, I am in it. So his idea is the most important thing is American economy, way of life, and even if it means all people above 60 will die, we should accept it. I think this is not an act of courage, not a heroic self-sacrifice, but it is an act of cowardice. Patrick prefers to die rather to courageously confront the threat of the catastrophe. 
the need to change our way of, uh, our way of life. Uh, uh, so what should we do in such a predicament? Now I'm slowly approaching the conclusion, but my crazy ideas, I warn you, awaken if you were sleeping, come now. I think the biggest threat is the common wisdom according to which, you know, the lesson of the ecological crisis is that we are part of nature, not its center. So we have to change our way of life, limit our individualism, develop new solidarity, accept our modest place in the life of, of our, on our earth. This is what one commonly hears, no? Modesty, we are not the center of the world. Or to quote Judith Butler, an inhabitable world for humans depends on a flourishing earth that does not have humans at its center. We oppose environmental toxins, not only so that we humans can live and breathe without fear of being poisons, but also because the water and the air must have lives that are not centered on our own. End of quote. I totally oppose this view. Is it not that global warming and other ecological threats demand of us collective interventions into our environment, which will be incredibly powerful, direct interventions into the fragile forms, fragile balance of forms of life. When we say that the rise of average temperature has to be kept below two degrees Celsius, we talk and try to act not as one particular entity, subspecies, but as general managers of the life on Earth, not as one modest species. The regeneration of the Earth obviously does not depend upon our smaller and more mindful role. It depends upon our gigantic role, which is the truth beneath all the talk of our finitude and mortality. As Marx would have put it, although I'm very critical of Marx, we are universal beings, especially, I think, the so-called deep ecologists. You know, when they claim not only other living beings, even rivers, forests have their own rights to be alive. Yes, but they don't know it. We humans stand for their rights. The most, apparently most modest deep ecologists are the most arrogant that you are, you can imagine. They posit us humans as the general, as it were, the general uh, man uh, managers. Now, not to talk for too long, I want to skip a very important part where I talk about authority. I am very critical about Hannah Arendt, who was incidentally Günther Anders' <laughs> wife, uh, but uh, she says something very deep in a text of her about authority. She says that although in today's world especially, it's even more true than in her time, you cannot really provide your children. Who knows what the future will be? We don't control it. You would be fully justified to tell to your children when they ask you, Mommy, I'm afraid what life will be, pandemic, global warming. The apparently honest answer would have been, shit, I also don't know it, survive, what can I do? The 
ethical tragedy is that even if this is true, you should stick to your authority even if it's a false one. You don't have the right to withdraw in such a comfortable way. Uh, so what should be our ethical stance? Now comes my moment of madness. Don't be afraid, no sex, nothing dirty. I would like to return to Antigone. I wrote a piece which nobody likes, alternate version of Antigone, but here I want to take a more positive view of Antigone. From the standpoint of Eumonia, a good lawful order of the city, Antigone is definitely demoniac, uncanny. Her defying act expresses a stand of demeasured, excessive insistence which disturbs the beautiful order of the city. The irony is that while Antigone presents herself as the guardian of the immemorial laws which sustain human order, she acts as a freakish and ruthless abomination. There definitely is something cold and monstrous about her. If you look for this kitschy image of femininity, gentle understanding, it's Ismene, her sister, it's not Antigone. Now let me prove it. You know, when we try to grasp why Antigone does it, I like Judith Butler, but here I have some misunderstanding with her, we usually take the Judith Butler global humanist line. We, we quote that, I think, uh, overrated passage about the unwritten laws older than gods themselves, which prescribe that every human being had the right for a respectful funeral and so on. But I'm sorry to say, this is not Antigone's true position. Antigone's true position comes later when she, in a ferocious dialogue with her uncle Creon, when she finally answers the key question, which was the law which pushed her to defend insist on the funeral of Polynacos, her brother. Let me quote the standard translation into English, sorry, which is basically correct. I would never have done it for children of my own, not as their mother, nor for a dead husband lying in decay. No, not in defiance of the, of the citizens or city's law. What law do I appeal to claiming this? If my husband died, there would be another one. And if I were to lose a child of mine, I would have another one with some other man. But since my father and my mother are hidden away in Hades, Hades house, that, I'll never have another living brother. That was the law that I used to honor my brother. Let's just read this carefully. These lines caused, as you maybe know, a scandal for century, with many interpreters, Goethe especially, claiming that there must be a later interpolation. Uh, 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 uh. Even the translation, at least into English, I noticed, tried to soften this point. I found the translation, which is totally false, like whether a mother or of children or a wife, I would always take up this struggle and go against the city's laws. No, she says exactly the opposite. 
If it were my husband or my children, I would let them rot. Uh, then there are translations which delete this brutal mention of rotting corpses. They just say, like, uh, uh, if my uh, son or husband were to die, I would not perform the ritual. Uh, then, but my favorite translation is the one by David Felt, Felt who, who translated radically. I quote that line. For Creon's law, I would bow to it if a husband or a son had died. I would let their bodies rot in the steaming dust, unburied and alone. So, I would let their bodies rot. This is not just the statement of the fact that, okay, there is an unburied corpse there, I would ignore it. It's an active stance, like, I would let them rot. So, we can see here how Antigone is the very opposite of this Judith Butler humanist world ethic stance of just, uh, this is basically, although I like her book, Antigone's claim, her universal liberal humanist, she was mad when I once characterized her as that, stance. You know, most of us get proper funeral, but there are those on the earth half excluded, and this is a typical liberal project. Let's bring them also in. Let all the excluded who are not fully integrated, let's bring them in. They also deserve it. No, Antigone is not saying this. Uh, she does not enact a universal rule that covers everybody. Her point is not, my God, everybody, even a criminal like Polynacos, deserves a proper burial. No. She said, I don't care about everybody. I would let them rot. It's only for Polynacos that I am doing it. Uh, uh, so, uh, 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 sorry, uh, uh, so, although then there are attempts then to save Antigone for our ethics, claiming that nonetheless she is universal, like her special case is Polynacos, but every Polynacos, every evil guy had somebody who maybe probably loved him or her. So, Basically, all deaths are exceptions. I don't think we can read Antigone like this. To put it very simply, Antigone must have been aware that for hundreds, at least, who died in the battle for the city. Don't forget, Polynacos was a traitor who attacked the city of Thebe. The same holds as for Polynacos, and she ignores them. Plus, her reasoning is very strange. If her husband or her child were to die, she would let, let them rot only because she would be able to replace them. Why should respect for the dead be unconditional only for those who cannot be replaced? Doesn't the procedure of replacement she evokes, she can find another husband, breed another child, strangely ignore the uniqueness of each person.
Why should another husband be able to replace a husband whom she probably would love in his uh, uh, singularity? So, uh, but okay, that's another problem. Let me conclude. The fact so remains that Antigone does, what Antigone does is something quite unique. Her universal rule is not everybody deserves to be properly buried and then applied to particularity. Oh my God, Polynacus also. No, her universal rule is let the bodies rot. And she fully honors the rule with only the exception of her particular case. The law that she obeys in properly burying Polynacus is the law of exception. And this is a very brutal law, far from any human reconciliation. Uh, Antigone makes here, I think, a kind of Hegelian step uh, further with regard to the triad of law and its examples. She transposes the gap that separates examples, ordinary examples from the law into law itself. We have law, ordinary examples. We should bury people and she says, I don't care, care about that. I only care about my unique exemplum, my brother. So uh, just to conclude, what's my point here? Antigone's big, among the big translations, sorry, of Antigone, Helderlin's is deservedly praised as unique. And one cannot but note how her exception, her readiness to perform the proper funeral of her brother, can be read in the light of a specific feature of Helderlin's, Helderlin's late poetry. You must know this. Instead of first describing a state of things, and then mentioning the exception. Things are like this, but there is an exception. Helderlin often begins a sentence or a line with aber, but, without noticing what's the preceding general, he begins with aber. Like the famous example, the famous lines from his hymn Andenken. Was bleibet aber stiften die Dichter? but poets establish what remains. The standard reading is, of course, here that after the event, poets are able to perceive the situation from the mature standpoint, from a safe distance. However, in Helderlin, there is nothing before but just a nameless chaos and a world constructed by a poet emerges as a but, as an act of disturbing a chaotic void. And I think this should be a proper post-apocalyptic thinking. At the beginning is a but. But poets establish what remains, which means that poets, the stiften, a strophe, the opening line of a poem, which is what remains after what, after the catastrophe. In this sense, Antigone's choice of brother is, I think, an authentic primordial ethical act. It does not disturb a preceding universal ethical law. It just 
interrupts the pre-ethical chaos of letting them rot. The pre-ethical chaos is cut short by, that's how Heldernin probably would have imagined Antigone, but Aber mein Bruder, but my brother, and nothing before. Now you will say, but is it not that Antigone's act is so problematic because it does disturb a pre-existing order of customs? It's not chaos. It's a crayon's state with its own loss. There is only one conclusion to be drawn from here. With her act, with her but, aber, Antigone herself devalues the preceding order of customs, reducing it to a chaos of rotting corpses. An act does not just introduce order into chaos. It simultaneously annihilates a preceding order, denouncing it as a false mask of chaos. Today, we need such acts more than ever. Today, you begin thinking by saying, okay, we live in apparent order, but this order is really a chaos, and we have to begin with Aber. But, we can, but is the beginning. Thank you very much for your patience. Please, uh, stop, stop. I'm here referring to... Did you see Chaplin's, uh, Chaplin's The Great Dictator, where people applaud Hinkel Hitler, and then Hitler makes up, and they stop applauding. I'm tempted to act like this. Okay, let me do some Q&A now. I owe it to you. Okay, how do I do it with the... Put me, ah, thank you very much. It works? Yes, no? Okay, okay. Alles klar, alles klar. Okay. Bitte? No, no, no. Not necessary. Not necessary. Sie können auf Deutsch stellen, aber leider ist meine deutsche Sprache nicht gut genug, um. Okay, uh, well, I'm, I'm just here. I again, warum sprichst du nicht Deutsch? This is. Uh... Well, it's kein problem for me, mein Gott. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that, that it might be a problem soll, for some people. I should feel guilty for not speaking German here. No, sorry, I can't do it. It's not possible. <laughs> also, um, just don't tell me good manners. You are a bourgeois individual. Yes, yes, Imperialist manners. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is um, okay. Now, now that's the, the time to uh, for the Q and A. Uh, well, you heard a talk, and it's uh, difficult to summarize. So I won't even try it. I mean, this was at some at some point we had uh, the working title, some figures of the end. I mean, we had here different sorts of endings of catastrophes, of apocalypses, a sexual uh, apocalypse, the end of philosophy insanity, etc., etc., and the, also the, the food apocalypse. Uh, on this anecdote, I mean, we actually received uh, a lot of very, very good proposals, and there was actually one proposal on food and the apocalypse. Think about it. I mean, it's really a topic. Ich habe nicht deine, mit dir brauche ich manchmal ein deutscher Übersetzer. Okay. Sagt auf Deutsch.
a misunderstanding. That's my rule. I consider you my friend. And for me, this hypocritical praising is always hypocrisy. The only form of true friendship is that I, I can be aggressive and we both know that our friendship will survive this. Yes. When somebody <laughs> praises me, I always suspect what is behind. Okay, uh, so since we have, we have resolved this one, so when this we is sorry. the people take over, he will get, I lowered his sentence to three years of, of this chunks arbeit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I, I think, it, uh, was I again more time? Yesterday it was less. Four time. years. Yeah, okay, okay. You sorry. ask a question that you are not allowed, you got one year more. Sorry. Okay, this is okay. not about me. This is about Samuel Zizek and you. So, uh, comments oh and questions. The, uh, just in, the, the, you see the microphone here. I mean, if you have, huh. if you want to say something, I mean, you have to walk up to it. I mean, that's also due to the regulations we have. Okay. Somebody? Yeah. Please okay. be as aggressive as you can, and this is not a rhetorical point, you know. Mr. Shisek, what's, yes? in your opinion, what's the greatest depiction of apocalypse in general of all time in cinema? In cinema? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a good point. It's the obvious answer, but I did something extremely perverted about it. Mm -hmm. I saw it as an optimist movie, Lars von Trier, Melancholia. Melancholia, great movie. It's an optimist movie, good news. This disgusting human race disappears from the earth. There will be a nice, peaceful universe after that. I really think that it has, the movie, a very refined ending. You remember when mm -hmm. the ethical heroine, played by Kirsten Dunst, mm -hmm. built a kind of imaginary tent enclosed space just with four sticks and says to the other two, we are safe here. It's a very refined gesture because it's not a false consolation. They all know they will die. Mm -hmm. But she constructs what in politically correct jargon is, they like to use the term, but in a wrong way, safe space. It's not that you are safe in this sense. It's simply more in an almost Buddhist sense. A, a space of inner freedom. A space of, to refer to other apocalyptic movies, a space of undeadness. You are alive, but already as alive, you are dead. So I always had this tendency, if we talk, okay, this is not apocalypse, this is uh, horror movies, uh, an American friend of mine developed, I plagiarized him, a good point about the opposition between vampires and zombies. Vampires are reactionary. They live among us. They are usually rich, noble men. Zombies are the working class. They just... And so I think the true class struggle in horror literature is vampires versus zombies. That's why I shocked my friend who played in Harry Potter movies. I hope you saw the last one where the bad guys attack that stupid school and so on. And I said, that Hogwarts, whatever. And uh, I said, it's the wrong end of the movie. The bad guy played without nose by, played by Ray Fiennes. 
This is the working class rebellion. They should kill them all, my God. You know, I will turn around the movie. So to go back, there are not many good catastrophe films. The ones I like are more this type of, how should I call them? Modest, even B-level, no big space battles, catastrophes, and so on. But uh, where you think life goes on, just. Then you notice, my God, but something is strange in this city, you know. That type of movies, where, you know what this reminds me of? I'm very solidarity with Palestinians on the West Bank, but at the same time, my God, I know what is anti-Semitism. And what shocked me is how in my country, ordinary normal people, she was a communist, my mother, who is already dead, how I noticed her anti-Semitism. She was very friendly with Jews. There was an old lady, her best friend. And once she had some, I don't know even who borrowed money from whom, but when this lady, they counted some money, left our apartment, my mother just turned to me and said, she is a nice lady, this old Jewish kind woman. But did you notice in what strange, intense way she counted the money? Ah, ah, ah. This was the sign that she is an alien, you know. That's why in good uh, apocalyptic movies, the aliens are not big frogs on what. I love those movies who, they are like us. There is just one detail. In some movies, they have too much skin between fingers or some strange sign here that you identify them. So this is the, the apocalypse movies. Although I must say that I even like The Day After Tomorrow by your great compatriot uh, Ro uh, Roland Emmerich. Isn't that, you remember, a beautiful scene where things are turned around because United States are in a new ice age? Americans wait for entrance to Mexico, you know. <laughs> I like them, but again, they, you know what I hate? Sorry, I will stop immediately. I talk too much. I hate these pseudo-apocalyptic movies which between the lines are the worst kind of utopia where the post-apocalyptic world is the same world as ours, just without the Jewish, capitalist, foreigner excess. It's like zero-level, honest, good capitalism. These are the worst. Like the one which deservedly failed. Kevin Costner's postman. It's the most stupidly part. Uh, civilization ends in the United States, just divided small community. And what Kevin Costner does, he finds an old uniform of a postman and pretends that the United States still exists. He simply starts carrying, do you see it, carrying yeah. post from one to the other. This is for me the reactionary apocalypse. Sorry, I talked too much. Okay. So uh, I, I have to Thank warn you. you. I mean, this is this cue. We will never uh, no, get you. No, you have to warn me. More, to be honest, I speak to too much. You? Please. Yeah. Hi. Um, on your concluding point, when you were referring to the Antigone story, where she was explicitly rejecting an order uh, and turning it into chaos, or not chaos specifically, but rather rejecting it as an order and just saying, "Oh, this is just a mask for chaos." You then spoke about how she said, "Aber mein Bruder." No, she didn't say this. It's my read. Well, okay, that's how you imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you then spoke of how people should be doing this more often. This kind of proclamation of, but my brother, 
Uh, I don't exactly know where you're trying to go with that. I will give you another example. I hope you will. I'm not, say, I'm not advocating particularism here. I think that the proper political gesture is then to gradually universalize this other itself, changing it into Hegelian terms, more authentic, concrete universality. Let me give you another very simple example. In United States, although I'm often viewed as suspicious by politically correct jerks, I was always for Black Lives Matter. Because the liberal answer to them is this naive, you know, anti-Antigone. But why only black lives matter? Don't all lives matter? No. If you say today in the United States all lives matter, the universality is already overdetermined, colored by middle class white values. Paradoxically, if you say all lives matter, you are exclusionary. If you say black lives matter, you opened up a way for effectively all universality without exceptions. You know who knew this, although they screwed it up later. When the greatest event, for me, maybe greater than the French Revolution, Toussaint Louverture, Haiti Revolution. Well, then later in 1804, they wrote a new constitution of Haiti. And you know how it defines the citizens of Haiti in this Black Lives Matter sense. All citizens of Haiti, independently of the color of their skin, are black. Excellent. That's what we want. Everybody can be there, but no, it will no longer be white standard. It will be black standard, not, not because blacks are now the new masters more. But I also take very seriously these new theoreticians who follow some lines of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, Franz Fanon and Malcolm X, the so-called Afro-pessimists. They have a very authentic message that they are a certain zero level. Uh, level. The racism against blacks is much more substantial than our racial and Latinos and so on and so on. And we have, again, to go through that zero point. Sorry, it was, but I was a little bit shorter than that before. So very good, very good. Moving in the right direction. And that's why also incidentally, sorry, my hero is Malcolm X. He was a Hegelian genius. You know Malcolm X. You know how he read the X? Not as, oh, we were deprived by our family roots, let's return to them. He explicitly wrote, Malcolm X, because we are deprived of our original African roots, we are in a unique position to be in the void to build a new, more authentic universality. He wasn't an idiot. He was a much deeper thinker than than, than Martin Luther King, I think, Malcolm X. But okay, that's another story. Ich folge Ihrer Bitte, auf Deutsch zu sprechen, wenn es in Bitte. Ordnung ist. Bitte, endlich. Um, ja. <lacht> ich habe eine Frage. Wie stehen für Sie die Begriffe des Guten und des Bösen im Zusammenhang zu Apokalypse und Postapokalypse? Da ich mich bei Ihren Ausführungen über Antigone gewundert habe, als es hieß, dass sie für sich eine Ausnahme macht für ihren Bruder und ihn beerdigen ja. möchte, dass gerade dieses für sich eine Ausnahme machen 
quasi eine Art Stiftungsakt des Ethischen darstellte, ihrer Interpretation ja. zufolge, während ja gerade bei Kant in der Religionsschrift es das heißt, dass das Böse ja gerade sei, für sich eine Ausnahme zu machen vom universalen Gesetz, also vom Moralgesetz und äh, das mittels... Be careful here, because you know, as you kindly mentioned in my younger years, which means 30 years before, not only me, but also Alenka Zupancic, published by Zurkam, it's still reprinted. Kant, uh, 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 Kant mit Lacan, oder was, uh, a very good reading of Kant. Kant is much more ambiguous here. I know Kant... Darauf wollte ich hinaus. Ah, bitte, bitte. Uh, dann, uh, uh, Bitte, genau. Fragen, bringen Sie die Frage zu Ende. Genau, und dieses für sich eine Ausnahme machen, fußt ja auf einer sogenannten intelligiblen Tat, in der man seinen moralischen Charakter sozusagen ja. bestimmt hat und sozusagen auch eine Art Entscheidung gebracht hat zwischen Gut und Böse und sich für das Böse entschieden hat und dass dann quasi jeder Mensch sich eigentlich notwendig immer schon fürs Böse entschieden hat, wie auch Schelling in der Freiheitsschrift letzten Endes behaupten musste, ja. dass die Geburt des Bösen eigentlich auch die Geburt des Geistes sei. Aber diese moralische Konnotation und auch Heidegger lässt sie dann in seiner Vorlesung über Schelling eigentlich okay. weg, wird ja auch von ihnen eher weggelassen. Muss man sagen, Moralität ist da eher so, das vermeintlich Gute einer alten, bestehend habenden Ordnung wird durch ein neues Gutes ersetzt und wird dann retrospektiv ja. als Böses an eingesehen. Also sind sozusagen, ist Moralität bloß eben Sitte, Brauch oder gehört zu diesem stiftenden Akt, zu diesem Aber doch auch irgendwie ein Sinn von Gut und Böse? Uh, you know what would be, I don't have the time, but it's a wonderful question because it touches the crucial point. You know where I think Kant breaks down? Not so much in um, Kritik der Praktischen Vernunft, but in his Religion is innerhalb der Grenzen der reinen Verdet, where he introduces the notion which would have been the authentic one of radical böse, This is for him, he, he uh, proposes it for a brief moment as an evil act which formally responds to the definition of the good. For Kant, good is something that you don't do for any pathological reasons. For Kant, pathological is not pathology. It's simply for any particular happiness, uh, glory, whatever. You do it just for the sake of it. In the same way that for Kant, uh, you do duty just for the sake of duty. And uh, then Kant gets afraid of this. Because if you accept the hypothesis in this sense of radical böse, or he even mentions once the term demonic, demonic evil, then in some sense, formally, the evil is indistinguishable from the good. Because it fits the same formal category, it's done just for the sake of it. So then Kant imperceptibly redefines radical böse, not as this pure ethically evil act, but you don't do it for profit or anything, just for... He replaces it with radically evil in the sense of an eternal propensity of human spirit to do things for pathological reasons and so on, you know. Although at his time, in Romanticism with Byron and so on, this demoniac evil, precisely in this sense that you do it just for the sake of it, was 
already circulating. For example, Edgar Allan Post, short story, The Imp of Perversity, is precisely about the one. So what I think is that we should go here and Hegel does it. For Hegel, it's not that we have das Gute and then fall into evil. No, das Gute is universalized evil, evil which wins over other particular evils. I think this is, this is the true Hegel. So I think that uh, you can even do it, uh, I like theological debates. You know, I debated with many priests, monks, and so on, and I always ask them this most evil, naive question. One question is, of course, when Christ is suffering of the, on the cross, is he bluffing or not? And it's a very serious question. Because if he is bluffing, then God in himself was divided. Like, how could he, Christ, remember, is not an, a Messiah of God. He is God embodied. How could he really suffer? That's why, incidentally, the early heresies were all about Gnostic heresies, about how Christ, it's an extremely disgusting interpretation of Christianity, Christ was just bluffing to suffer for the people there. In reality, his spirit was above them, and some of them even say, ah, he was, oh, look, the idiots down there. Or, if you say this, again, that Christ was not suffering, then you have a cynical spectacle staged by God, you know. And again, another question in this direction is the wonderful topic of Felix Culpa, the heavy fall. This means it's obvious that in paradise, God was cheating like crazy. He consciously pushed uh, Eve and Adam to sin. Listen, you prohibit to eat from the tree of knowledge, the apple. Thanks very much. Why did then God put this tree in the very middle of paradise for everybody to see? It's clearly that he, because God was aware, Hegel reads him like that, that fall into evil is the beginning of humanity. You, it, was, it was a fake choice. It was a very cruel act by God. Some, like Augustine, try to save this in a hypocritical way by saying that God calculated in and discovered that, okay, there will be many evil, but the, you know, like some idiots who tried to save Stalinism and say, okay, there were crimes, millions died, but overall picture is nonetheless positive of socialism, you know. No, 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 I think that God fully Accept. This is why I like those Gnostics who claim that uh, God the Father is simply devil himself. And the death of Christ is in a way the apology of God for all the evil God has brought to this earth. So in this sense, I am not, now let me be very clear here, I am not a relativist here. And I am not preaching any retroactive in, in the sense of, I know, some desperate Jews even accept this because they are so afraid of meaninglessness that they claim even Holocaust has a deeper meaning. It 
gave us the state of Israel because without Holocaust there wouldn't be sympathy. I totally reject this logic of direct theology. I think catastrophes genuinely happen and sometimes it's contingent. We may profit of them by apocalyptic revelation, but even Hegel doesn't say all catastrophes has a deeper meaning. For example, think about Mongols. The nightmare, they destroyed half of Europe, Arab civilization, and so on. And Hegel never says, oh, this was a moment in the progress of... Uh, of no, I think Hegel is truly a much more uh, radical pessimist. Since we are talking about higher powers, I mean, this is, there's powers... And you embody the higher power, that's your point. No, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe I'm also just bluffing. Okay, uh, we, uh, we have to... If, und das kann ich auf Deutsch sagen, wenn man die, 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 die Fragen und die Antworten kurz halten, können wir noch maximal zwei Leute kriegen. Also das, es tut mir leid für diejenigen, die Ja, aber sagen. kurz kann nicht zu klein sein. You know what? We, everybody in Slovenia laughed. You know that in ordinary Slovene, the word Kurz is an extremely vulgar expression for penis. <laughs> so when it was in our newspapers, Kurz visited Slovenia, ha, ha, ha. So I would say, when okay. you say Kurz short, not too short. Okay, okay. please. Would you, uh, would you consider um, modern, modernity and pluralism, pluralism as the downfall of um, stability? No, no, I'm absolutely, I follow here like Adorno, he somewhere quotes this famous line in a letter, I think, by Arthur Rimbaud, Il faut être absolument moderne. I, I think that, that uh, yes, modernity was a catastrophe, it's a horrible story what it did, but I'm a pessimist, but before it was just another version of the same shit. I mean, that's why, as a feminist, I don't believe in these stories of happy matriarchate and so on. Don't mix matriarchate with the actual role of women in matriarchal society. I read a wonderful study of some tribe in, not even New Zealand, New Guinea, there, where it appears matriarchal. The central sacred space is, oh, it's built in the form of a big vagina. So, oh, oh, matriarchy. Yeah, but then you discover that only men have access to this. <laughs> Not women and so on, you know. I'm just a more radical pessimist, and that's why, I hope this will satisfy you, I am absolutely for retroactivity here. The most disgusting historicism is to say, listen, but... Okay, we cannot judge the past with our standards. No, in some sense we should. We shouldn't say, okay, it was nice to torture slaves, it was part of their culture. No, if you look at it closely, women always rebelled just with oppressed slaves, always rebelled. So I don't like this historicist approach. Let's not impose on others our standards. No, we absolutely have the right and duty to do it. Just be careful that it's not only our West European standards. But here, this is even, I'm not ashamed to say, my Habermasian aspect, you know. I hate this moral relativism, who are we to judge and so on. I think that this topic of 
like we are all caught in our particular identities. How do we know that we are in universality? It's a false problem. The point is that we are not even purely particular. Our particular identity is always split, subverted, and so on and so on. The pro we, uh, global capitalism means that we are much more universal already. Global capitalism is authentically universal. Take a Chinese and guy and the Latino American guy and the European. They may be caught each in his her own world, but when they exchange things on the market, it perfectly works. That's why, again, I am universalist, not just in the sense our long-term goal, but that's the great thing about capitalism. It is not the good universality, but it's, and don't even, even, even that's why I don't accept this primitive critique, pseudo-Marxist, of human rights, they are just a mask of Western exploitation. Yes, they were at the beginning, but the universal form immediately triggered a process. You know, Mary Wollstonecraft, women said, hey, hey, sorry, human rights, why not us? Then blacks in Haiti said, workers and so on. So that's Marxian dialectic. Forum matters. Marx was never this primitive reductionist. Genug. How okay. do they say in Vietnam? This, uh, this is really the last question. Bitte. The, I'm sorry, guys. I mean, I'm so sorry. Here. I'm so. Uh, can't we go? Don't be that hypocritical leftist. You know what my yes, I'm really sorry for this. They say we could go on, but there is a cleaning lady who has to yeah, yeah, yeah. and go See? home and so on. I'm also sorry for these people. Sorry? I'm also sorry for these people who have Yeah, to but now I will be a Marxist hypocrite. Okay. I'm sure that these people will be ready to sacrifice themselves ah. for me to spread a progressive world. Okay, please. Um, so, uh, my question is, um, uh, perhaps to some extent a bit of a challenge. Um, I'm wondering if um, we can consider the encounter with people with uh, cognitive disabilities or even severe cognitive disabilities in our modern Western hypercognitive age as um, an encounter to some extent with what we want to object from um, and in that sense apocalyptic or perhaps catastrophic. And the reason I wanted to sort of bring this into four is because we can also use the sort of, it doesn't have to be escape, I want to take it seriously, but we can also um, sort of look to the big sort of ecological crisis kind of things and be, you know, catastrophize about this, but this can also be a almost projective identification from the thing we're trying to hide from, which is that we're faced with our own fragility, frailty, death, um, and in our autonomistic sort of culture and individual, individualist, individualistic mm. culture, you know, we don't want to, to see what, it's almost the inbreaking of a life which we don't want to accept is true of ourselves, which is coming, which would be Alzheimer's, other things like that. Um, so uh, I wanted to just ask you if you think um, cognitive disability in some sense can be seen apocalyptically or catastrophically. And then as an adjunct to that question, um, the question of psychoanalysis then becomes, I think, difficult and interesting because you have to then really uh, make a distinction between madness and disability. And I think limit, the limit and disability can give you this surplus within which you can have a creative something, so life with it, you know, almost um, something productive, like um, almost the limit which you mm. have in the sublime, 
I think what's ignored perhaps with disability or limit is that actually it's a chance for creativity, yeah. a chance for something else, maybe even beyond, so to speak, but it's material. Um, but I'm wondering if you think um, it's possible psychoanalytically to actually make the distinction between the eudaimoniac or demoniac in that sense. Surely this is a, a real hermeneutical issue in the psycho psychoanalytic method. Yeah, but it's... Thanks for the great question again. I don't have full time. <laughs> you know what would be my answer that authentic psychoanalysis is always immanently critical. Look, it's which, which is the crucial hermeneutic point in psychoanalysis? Even Foucault, a great critic of psychoanalysis, knew this. You go to a psychiatrist and, like, will he say, don't worry, go on, you are normal, or does he or she, your analyst, consider you have real symptoms, you need a treatment? And, of course, these criteria are culturally specific. And Freud knew this, and I will tell you a funny example, but absolutely true, that I learned in Latin America when I was that married for two years in around 2000 in Argentina, that uh, in when first wave of European psychoanalysts emigrated there, uh, fidelity to your spouse, husband, wife, was considered normal. So if you treated serially your partner, it was considered a pathology. What trauma are you escaping from and so on? Now the situation is the opposite. If you're faithful to your partner, they say, oh, this must be a traumatic fixation, you need a treatment. If you jump, you know, and uh, Freud's answer is very clear here. Unbehagen in der culture. There is a constitutive pathology in culture formations, at least in, till now, as such. That every symptom is not a deviation from a culture. Here it's a formal parallel between psychoanalyse and Marx. For Marx also, crises are not deviation of normal functioning of capital. Crises are the moment of truth. And in the same sense for, for Freud, to understand human being, you must begin with potential madness, symptoms, and so on and so on. That's the basic lesson of Freud. To become normal heterosexual is not a natural evolution. It's, that's the whole point of Freud on all that stuff, you know, uh, uh, symbolic castration, trauma, Oedipus. It's a very traumatic, violent process. So in this sense, I think psychoanalysis can be successful because uh, when it analyzes a symptom, that's the whole meaning of Freud's Unbehagen in der Kultur selbst. Its first question is always, but this symptom is never just an individual aberration. It's the sign of what is wrong in this culture itself, in its universality. And this, I think, can be helpful in the sense of, even if you look, I know all these multicultural stories, like the standard reproach to psychoanalyse in Japan is that, sorry, when Freud talks about Verneinung, you say, this is not my mother, ah, 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 so it is your mother, and so on. 
a friend, psychoanalyst, told him that in Japan it's complicated because in our polite society we have 30 ways to say no. You know? <laughs> and it's totally different. So I'm saying that I see your problem, but I think that authentic psychoanalysis, not its Anglo-Saxon, but not only there, uh, normalization, uh, can give a convincing reply to your worry, I think. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much.